Hey there, deviants, local and abroad. It's time for another episode of Dark and Devious. everybody thanks for coming back for another episode of dark and devious i know this one is a pretty quick turnaround from our last one but that is all to your benefit uh we are sweating here in the twin cities i see patrick has his tank top on i do and i i did once say on this uh podcast that i don't wear sleeveless shirts because i have spaghetti noodles for arms um <laughs> but it's hot i mean i'm a heat baby y'all know that um but it's it's just really hot out um but today it's actually okay i spent a couple hours outside and there's a there's a pretty strong breeze so it the breeze helps a lot it definitely does significantly yeah we uh, i know um, um I was just going to say, uh, oh, we went, I was just going to say yesterday. Uh, we <laughs> Cut that out. I'm wondering just go if with there's whatever you were going to say. Okay. So yesterday, actually, you know, when it was reaching like 100 degrees or so here, uh, every year my mom and I go to those, go to these neighborhood garage sales. I think I did mention that I was going to do it last, last time yeah, we talked. Yeah, you I? did. Um, so yeah, we went ahead and did that yesterday. It was so much fun. It wasn't quite as big as it normally was, but we found plenty of great stuff. Everybody found something and yeah, it was a great time. I was really pleasantly surprised. I think the, um, the most unusual find I had from yesterday was it was a like 1950s Hamilton Beach hairdryer. So it looks kind of like a ray gun almost. It's so uh, like so super retro. And it's one of those things that you really wonder how this, how anybody kept it for all these years. So did you wind up buying the it? The cord looks really gnarly. What was that? Did you wind up buying it? Oh, yes, of course, I bought it. <laughs> of course you did. Um, uh, don't put this in the episode, but can you turn down your volume a little bit? Because I can hear myself. Sure. How's that? I'm testing. Well, awesome. I'm glad that you guys got to have a, a good day yesterday. Um, it's funny because we actually went to the store yesterday. And uh, my husband actually said, he was like, Chris is antiquing right now, so we won't see him because <laughs> um, he listened to the episode in the morning. Um, but yeah, it's always nice when you're there, but I guess not every trip to TJ's needs to be Chris-centric. Chris, Chris -centric. <laughs> 
Well, have you spotted Ty yet? My goodness. I have it, not. Uh, but every time I go in there, I'm I keep an eye out. Keep checking those name tags. Yeah. So <laughs> today, um, we actually, like I mentioned, we I was outside for a couple of hours. It was a really nice mid to midday, early afternoon um, outdoor birthday party for our nephew. He turned nice. six and it was just really nice, you know, because all the adults had their vaccinations done and all the all the kids were able to play outside together without masks. And because, you know, they say outdoors is safer and like yeah, better strong- ventilation. Yeah, and there was a strong awesome. breeze, which helps a lot too. So just ice cream. One of the kids ate. She said, so she's six. She said she ate um, four cookies, um, three ice cream sandwiches, and a couple of fruit pops. And I was like, Lord. Oh, to be able to have that kind of metabolism. Right. Yeah, and she was. She was a skinny little thing. So... Uh, I was like, man, like one, your stomach is like the size of a, a grapefruit. Where did that all go? <laughs> and two, I mean, I hope your parents are ready for a sugar meltdown lately, <laughs> later rather. Yeah, it was really nice. It was a good day that to be so out. That is so funny. It was a good day to be out and about. Other than that, do, do, you have, do we have any news to share? I mean, we just put our episode so recently. I don't know. I was looking at some news headlines to earlier today and they were like all too like too sad to even bother mentioning right now. <laughs> yeah. There was some gruesome stuff happening and I don't know. I guess I'm I'm not ready to to uh get into that. Mm-hmm. It's too fresh. All right. Um, so just a quick update, everybody. Uh, we did just have to switch Chris's recording location because um, we were hearing some feedback uh, from me through his audio and the reception was a little bit poor because he was far from his router. So um, hopefully you didn't notice anything, but if you did, um, it should be all, yeah, it should be better now. So uh, oh, yeah, that's all I got to yes. say. Hopefully we'll be able to, any, any minor things we could fix in the editing process, so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as we are saying, we don't really have much podcast news or true crime news or personal share news because we literally just recorded like 50 hours ago. So, <laughs> um, so with, with that being said, um, you know, again, if you're new to the podcast, um we have a instagram page account rather it is dark and devious podcast we have a facebook uh page that you can like and follow which is dark and devious podcast and then um we have our gmail account dark and devious podcast at gmail.com and if you ever want to you know give us suggestions um of cases or things that we can improve on in our episodes um, or if you just want to say hi, because I like it when people say hi. Um, it's really fun to to see who's who's just giving us a little a little jingle. Mm-hmm. And I um I always like it when I log on to Facebook and I see the notification of like 
Dark and Devious has three new likes or I love that too. It's and, like, yes, people are discovering us and checking us out. Yeah, because the more that we get, like the more likes we know that it's not like just our inner circles because we've already like hammered those people to death. <laughs> We're like, please listen, please listen. We're babies. Um, so we know that, you know, strangers, strangers are finding us. Yeah. Um, it's funny, actually, one of my coworkers today was just saying that she wanted to send some sort of true crime meme. So keep an eye on the Instagram account. If see if she sends that to that your way. Um, but I'm excited to see what it is. Will do. Uh, she, she was also saying that her dad went to school with Ted Bundy and like knew him. And there was, I, I think she said that her dad would would be like, oh, it's I mean, like happy Monday, Monday, Bundy. Like, and she was like, I don't know how my dad didn't get murdered. Uh, <laughs> making that terrible rhyming joke. Yeah, um, well, maybe it's it. because her dad wasn't his typical type. Uh, that, that, yeah, knowing what we know now. Yeah. But yeah, um, so yeah, maybe there'll be something fun coming from that platform. Yeah, I hope so. Well, without further ado, should we go ahead and get into it? Yeah, let's go ahead. I, I think I'm ready for a, a tale today. Okay. Well, with it being the month of June and that we mentioned it's Pride Month um, last week, I feel like for the next uh, two recordings for myself at least, um, because they will be both in the month of June, I'm going to do, and just for those of you that may not know, um, LGBTQIA stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, and asexual. So I'm going to be covering cases that focus around people within that community. And at first I was, I was thinking of some individual cases that I wanted to highlight. Um, I really wanted to talk about um, a member of the trans community, people of color within the community, because even though I am a white male, I do feel like white men get talked about a lot more when it comes to violent crimes against uh, people that fall within this group. But I thought actually, I will focus on those folks Later on, you know, as our podcast grows, you know it, it's not too old. Everyone listening here uh, was alive for it. And that is the 2016 Pulse nightclub massacre. This one, I like, I, oh, I like when, as soon as you started like kind of hinting at it, I'm like, oh, I bet I know what he's going to talk about. And I like, I started to get goosebumps a little bit. Yeah, this one is a huge one it affected like the entire lgbt community in that area and it's not like it was just one type of person was targeted exactly um and i was in korea at the time when it happened and i know it just wasn't you know america the usa population uh that was shocked and rattled by it because <laughs> It was global. I mean, all the outside of the LGBTQ community, 
even people who weren't part that didn't fall into those acronyms were still just in shock and horror mm-hmm. of just how awful it was. Right. And it like the the um, ripple effects for this one were, was huge. Uh, there's even one of my favorite bartenders actually at one of the, the gay bars here in Minneapolis uh, lost a friend uh, in that shooting. And it's crazy to think like we're all interconnected some way like that. And when I knew that it's like, wow, someone that I really care about lost somebody that they cared about. And it, it, it really just kind of makes it even more real. Cause I really feel like we do get desensitized here in, in the United States because there are, su- there are such frequent mass casualty events, you know, um, it seems like a lot of them don't even make the headline news anymore because it's like, oh, it has to be really big or at a really public event or something in order for it to make national news. But, but it like all, every single time something like this happens, it matters. Yes, yeah, it really does. Um, and every time it's a different community that's affected. And yeah, it's just um, real side note before we get in to it. Uh, it's, it's, it's saddening and depressing that during COVID, when COVID was at its worst and everyone was in lockdown and there were no events, we didn't have school shootings. We didn't have concert shootings. We did not have grocery store shootings. And just within the past month or two, as things have opened up and things have loosened, once again, what do we see? At least once a week, if not more. You know, three people killed at the supermarket. Um, there was that office building just last week that was targeted. Multiple people were shot and killed. And it's, it's just sad that when we were a country that was at its breaking point, at its worst with COVID, it was actually more peaceful than it is when people can go about their day as they want. Right. It it just doesn't, it, it doesn't make any sense why all of a sudden, uh, like, this is what everyone resorts to. It's like, why, why is there so much anger and hatred, like such severe hate, whether it's targeted at a community or a specific person, like, why does this country have such a unique problem with things escalating to that level and mm-hmm. i i know i don't have an answer to that we could talk that's... for days about that mm-hmm. oh it's kind of depressing now um but all right i i guess i'll get going yes please do so before we talk about the terrible incident that occurred in 2016 um, I just want to give a little bit of a backstory on Pulse Nightclub itself. So Pulse was founded by Barbara Poma and Ron Legler and opened on July 2nd, 2004. Barbara's brother, John, died in 1991 from the AIDS epidemic, and the club is named after his Pulse to live on. Pulse had a focus on talent, and Barbara ensured that her brother's memory was prominent on the website. 
and that the facility was more than just, quote, yet another gay club. Pulse hosted theme performances each night and had a monthly program featuring educational events geared towards the LGBTQ community. Every night had something different, but Pulse was mostly known to have some very impressive drag shows and that the bar's dancers were breathtaking. The Washington Post described the club's first 12 years as a community hub for HIV prevention, breast cancer awareness, and immigration rights, and reported that it had partnered with educational and advocacy groups such as Come Out With Pride, Equality Florida, and the Zebra Coalition, which is a network of organizations that provide services to the LGBTQ community and youth of all ages, 13 to 24. Wow, I'm, I love that. I'm, it's one of those things that that's definitely lost in the headlines because you know they don't get into the, the background of the club. Right. They just, they, it's just like, oh, it's so focused on the event that you don't you lose the context of it. This was more than just a place to go and dance and drink and you know meet people in the the queer community. It's actually kind of a community space too. Yeah, um, which leads right in perfectly. Um because since its opening, Pulse was a place to celebrate life, be oneself, support each other, find support. And for many people, it was like a second, possibly even like their first home and a place where they felt love and embraced. Unfortunately, that all came to an end on June 12th, 2016. On that night, Pulse was hosting a Latin night, which was a weekly Saturday night event drawing primarily a Latino crowd. The place was packed with about 320 people, both gay and straight, young and not so young, from the US, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, Mexico, and elsewhere. Everyone was having a good time dancing salsa and bachata. Around 2 a.m., the bar began serving last calls for drinks. At the same time, a man was parking a rented van in the parking lot of a neighboring car shop. This man entered the Pulse nightclub and is seen on camera purchasing an entrance ticket. And then he left through the same front doors which he entered. He returned to his van for a short amount of time, but then quickly got out and walked towards the building armed with a semi-automatic rifle and a handgun. The shooter bypassed Officer Adam Gruler, a uniformed off-duty Orlando Police Department officer working an extra duty shift as a security guard and he entered the building through the southern entrance and just opened fired immediately. Grueler, the security guard, took cover and called for assistance. When he witnessed the shooting of two patrons attempting to escape through an emergency exit, he fired shots at the culprit. In response, the shooter withdrew back into the nightclub and continued shooting victims as he traversed through the building, sometimes firing into bodies without checking whether they were already deceased. Gosh, which I saw. I know, I know you're so one of the things they tell you to do in a, an active shooter situation is it like if you can't like, like first is to run. If you can't run, hide. If you, if can't, you can't hide, play hide, dead. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the whole 
thought of like even if you were playing dead that that wouldn't necessarily stop him from shooting right uh it just it's chilling and really amplifies the level of hatred that we're like he he wants to make sure that whatever job he's there to do that he wants to make sure that it's like certain that he kills as many people as possible mm-hmm. and i um i mentioned how he like he wandered around uh shooting people so uh, it doesn't actually show any shots being fired but there are security footage on youtube that you can see him walking around the dance floor uh, just like pacing back and forth going from one end to the other and it's just it's scary to watch i can't even imagine what it been like to be there um so when additional officers arrived at the nightclub around 204 so just minutes later um grueler shouted the gunman's on the patio and resumed firing two officers joined him in engaging with the man who then retreated further into nightclub into the nightclub and this began the hostage situation in one of the bathrooms. In less than five minutes, the gunman had fired approximately 200 rounds, pausing only to reload. During the shooting, some of the people trapped inside the club sought help by calling or sending text messages to friends and relatives. Initially, some of them thought the gunshots were firecrackers or part of the music. However, a recently discharged Marine veteran working as a nightclub bouncer immediately recognized the sounds as gunfire. He jumped over a locked door behind which dozens of people were hiding, paralyzed by fear. He was able to open a latch door behind them, allowing 70 people to escape. Many described a scene of panic and confusion caused by the loud music and darkness. So I couldn't imagine this happening you know like in a well-lit like you know office space but to have it be dark and loud and strobe lights going i mean and probably like a smoke machine it'd be even more terrifying right this sounds like an absolute horror nightmare like it's it sounds like a scene from a movie right and unfortunately, it's not. This is real life. Yeah. One person shielded herself by hiding inside a bathroom and covering herself with bodies, acting if she had fallen victim to the gunfire. A bartender said she took cover beneath the bar and could hear the man pacing and talking to himself as he searched for hostages and potential victims. God. According to a man trapped inside a bathroom with 15 other patrons, the gunman fired six times into the bathroom through the closed door, killing two and wounding severals. The man who had taken cover inside a stall with others was injured himself by two bullets and struck with flying pieces of wall hit by stray bullets. Shortly after um, entering the women's restroom, the gunman's rifle jammed. He then discharged or discarded the rifle and switched to his Glock 17 pistol. Two survivors quoted the man saying, I don't have a problem with black peoples or Latinos and that he wouldn't stop his assault until America stopped bombing his country. Other survivors heard him claim that he had explosives as well as snipers stationed around the club. 
patrons trapped inside called or texted 911 to warn of the possible presence of explosives. At 2.22 a.m., the shooter placed a 911 call, during which he mentioned the Boston Marathon bombers as his, quote, homeboys, and made a reference to Abu Salha, an American citizen who died in the suicide bombing in Syria in 2014. He said he was inspired by Abu Salha's death for the Al-Nursa front targeting Syrian government troops, a mutual enemy of the two Salafist groups, despite their history of violence with each other. He also swore allegiance to ISIS. The FBI said that the gunman and Abu Salha had attended the same mosque and knew each other casually. After about 15 to 20 minutes, SWAT arrived and took over the operation. When asked why the officers didn't proceed to the bathroom and engage with the shooter, Orlando Police Chief John Mina said it was because the situation went from an active shooter to a barricaded gunman and had hostages. He also noticed, noted that if he had continued shooting, officers would have gone in. At that time, the last shot by the gunman was fired sometime between 2.10 and 2.18 a.m. Rescues of people trapped inside the nightclub commenced immediately and continued throughout the night. Because so many people were lying on the dance floor, one rescuing officer shouted, if you're alive, raise your hand. And if you're able to move, you need to get up and go now. By 2.35 a.m., police had managed to extract nearly all of the injured from the nightclub. Those who remained were only the hostages held in the bathroom and about a dozen people who were hiding inside dressing rooms. At 2.45 a.m., News 13 of Orlando received a call from the shooter with him saying, I'm the shooter. It's me. I am the shooter. He then said he was carrying out the shooting on behalf of ISIS and began speaking rapidly in Arabic. Oh my goodness. Also talk about just like, oh, you, you think that this is like in, in vogue for uh, like now it's like ISIS who? Yeah. Like, where it's just like, oh, you just are throwing yourself behind like the cause of the moment. Exactly. And it's just really kind of pathetic when you think about it, where it's like, yeah, it's just, the it's again, just another like, cowardly act because it's like wow you're going into a place where you will literally not come across like come across anybody else who's armed and and, and everyone there is completely not expecting it. everyone is just not prepared and not to mention like it's the end of the night like you're saying it was like after last call uh, like yeah people have been drinking throughout the evening so it's like way to way to prey on just people who are at their most vulnerable yeah and in a vulnerable place too like i said it's dark and loud yeah it's it's so cowardly police hostage negotiators spoke with the gunman by phone three times between 248 and 327 a.m he claimed during one of the calls that he had bombs strapped to his body and that there was a vehicle in the parking lot with enough explosives to take out city blocks. At 4.21 a.m., more than two hours after the terrifying ordeal began, 
eight of the hostages escaped after police had removed an air conditioning unit from the, an exterior wall. The escaped hostages reported to the police that the man had uh, behind the shooting was stating that he was going to strap bombs to four of the hostages and place them in each corner of the room. Um, and just to note, all this talk about bombs is completely fabricated. The only weapons he had were his rifle and handgun. So it sounds like he was trying to emulate other terrorists who had blown themselves up, which is right. like- Like Abdu, the one that he mentioned, uh, yeah. inspired him. He was a suicide bomber. Um, and he was inspired by that. Why he didn't actually follow through. I mean, yeah, why that, did he choose to carry it out with guns rather than explosives? And I mean, who knows if he had done explosives, it could have been less, you know, less fatalities occurred or it could have been worse depending on. Right. Um, cause, yeah. Cause then if the building's on fire and people are trapped, then you have a whole other situation. Mm -hmm, um, yeah. Or it could have been very isolated. Mm -hmm. Which I, I also think too that what's really sad is that it's it's a lot less suspicious to have a single person buy a bunch of automatic weapons and a bunch of ammunition. Like that doesn't raise any red flags in America because right. it's such a, a normal thing in some places. I don't think I have the answer to proper gun regulation, but I, you know, it's like, do you really need a, a gun that can shoot so many rounds and hold so much, uh, like have such a huge capacity of shooting rounds just for your own enjoyment, whether, or whether it's like target practice or self-defense or, um, or hunting, like, those are the only three reasons I can think of to own it, like to, to need a gun. Yeah. Um, why should you be, why should you have something that's capable of killing dozens of people at a time? Mm -hmm. I completely agree. It's a forever ongoing battle, mm -hmm. gun control in this country. Um, but at around 5 a.m., Orlando police began breaching the building's wall. Just before the breach, the gunman entered the women's bathroom where hostages were hiding and he opened fire, killing a man who sacrificed his life to save the woman behind him. Wow. At 5.07 a.m., 14 SWAT officers successfully breached the building when a police officer drove a Bearcat armored vehicle through a wall in the northern bathroom. They then used two flashbangs to distract the gunman and shot him. He was shot eight times and killed in the resulting shootout, which involved at least 11 officers, and they fired about 150 bullets. Dang. It, you know, it, it's the number one thing in those situations is to neutralize the threat and make sure that this person can't injure or kill anybody else. But I, part of me also is like, I wish that they could have captured him alive so that he would spend the rest of his natural life 
in a concrete box and and never see the light of day again because he got his big um dramatic death um that and to to some other people other terrorists they're going to look at him like a martyr who went down in a blaze of glory and like when when they're captured and prosecuted uh i it, they don't really get that same kind of level of glory i feel like nobody really wins either way in this situation yeah um my line of thinking is like i i agree with you i wish he would have to serve the rest of his life in you know solitaire you know just the most miserable existence mm -hmm. um because he got what he wanted and then it was over you know um the only line of thinking that i i have though as far as justice goes is in the event that you know religions and gods are fulfilled um i hope that for his religion his god has an eternal punishment of some sort yeah i mean and that's the thing we you know we only get one go around in this life and that's and he chose to blow it on that it's like wow you could have done something actually good like you like oh like you're upset at us and in, uh, involvement in the middle east well maybe you could have been an advocate or something and you know worked toward peace instead of because you know this is it's absolute mat in insanity that oh you think that that what you're doing by killing people is going to somehow change us policy if anything it's going to make it worse it's also it's also like because people uh in of middle eastern descent are al already have to deal with the 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 hurtful and horrible stereotypes of being associated with terrorism uh it's like you're just you're just um you're adding to the problem yeah exactly because now when people see other people who look like this shooter um they're they're going to immediately have some sort of doubt as to whether they feel safe around that person mm -hmm. and yep. it's, it's a, uh it's a psychological trauma to the entire country when stuff like that happens because it's it's like oh like do i feel safe around someone who looks like that or who's from that country um because who's to say that they're not the same and it's it's horrible and i i hate it when uh when things like that keep happening where it's like wow self-fulfilling prophecy um, and and it just sets back everybody everybody's um, struggle toward equality and safety and everything because you know now now you've just given you've thrown fuel onto the fire of racism. Yeah, um, but well, we could again talk about that topic for a right? very long time as well. <laughs> Um, so back to the story, um, 
and I will address that topic towards the end of this. So, but back um, in Orlando at 5:53, the police posted on Twitter, "Pulse shooting. The shooter inside the club is dead." 30 hostages were freed during the police operation, um, and those hostages who were already terrified had to undergo searches for the possibility that they were accomplices. So the police searched them for guns and explosives just out of precaution. Gosh, that's so traumatizing. In the end, 50 people died in the incident, including the assailant, and another 58 were injured, some critically and life-threatening. 39, including the gunmen, were pronounced dead at the scene and 11 at local hospitals. Of the 38 victims to die at the scene, 22 died on the stage area and dance floor, nine in the nightclub's northern bathroom, four in the southern bathroom, three on stage, one at the front lobby, and one out on the patio. Five of the dead were not killed during the initial volley of gunfire, but during the hostage situation in the bathrooms. Due to the large Latino population in Orlando and the popular Latin theme night, over 90% of the victims were of Hispanic background and half of those were of Puerto Rican descent. Four Dominicans and three Mexican citizens were also among the dead. An off-duty United States Army Reserve captain at the club was one of them of those killed. Prior to 2017 Las Vegas shooting, the Pulse shooting nightclub massacre had been the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history. And to this day, it is also the deadliest incident of violence against the LGBTQ plus community in the history of the United States. So who was the perpetrator and why did he do it? The gunman was identified as 29-year-old Omar Mateen, an American born in New Hyde Park, New York. At the time of the shooting, he lived in an apartment complex in Fort Pierce, Florida, 117 miles from the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. From October 2006 until April 2007, Mateen trained to be a prison guard for the Florida Department of Corrections. As a probationary employee, he received an administrative termination upon a warden's recommendation after he joked about bringing a gun to school. Mateen unsuccessfully pursued a career in law enforcement, failing to become a Florida State Trooper in 2011, and also failing to gain admissions to a police academy in 2015. I think it's really interesting that he keeps applying to these positions of power where, and, and I feel like this, this is not an unusual story. I feel like this is something that has been uh, a pattern before in other cases where when somebody tries and tries and tries, you know, like they like fail at trying to get into the military or they try, they fail at trying to become a police officer. Um, and then they kind of end up doing something else and then like they're not feeling fulfilled or respected or whatever and so they end up lashing out in some other way 
and it, I, I would be interested to uh, uh, see the psychological profile on this person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot of it comes down to just not being in control of their own lives and not getting what they want. They're not getting fulfilled. So they seek for a way that they can have power and that they can control what's going on around them. And a lot of times that results in uh, massacres such as this, uh, serial killers, uh, serial rapists, um, just people that can control those around them because mm -hmm. they feel like they can't control what's happening to themselves. That makes, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, where it's like, you can't, like you, you want to have control, so you'll take it even if it means doing something unspeakable. Mm -hmm. Since 2007, he worked as a security guard for G4S Secure Solutions. The company said two screenings, one conducted upon hiring and the other in 2013, raised no red flags. Mateen held an active statewide firearms license and an active security officer's license, and he had passed the psychological test and had no criminal record. In 2009, he married his first wife, who left him just after a few months due to severe mental and physical abuse. Sounds like a great guy. Yes. Following the nightclub attack, she said that he was unstable and mentally ill, obviously disturbed. At the time of the shooting, Mateen was married to his second wife, and they had a young son together. Ugh. God, can you imagine the the child in that situation? Like, how do you come to terms with the fact that your that your parent was a mass a murderer? Mass murderer, like, and and overnight too. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I I don't know how you'd begin to deal with that situation and. How do you like? How could you not feel like that? Some of that evil runs through you too. Yeah. How do you wrap your mind around that? Right. An unnamed police academy classmate said Mateen had asked him out around 2006, and they had spent time at gay bars together after class. And he always believed that Mateen was gay. He also described him as socially awkward and disliked by classmates. A man who identified as Mateen's lover of two months stated that he believed the massacre was out of revenge against Latino men when Mateen learned that he may have been exposed to HIV from a Puerto Rican man whom he had sex with. However, autopsy results on Mateen showed that he was HIV negative. At least four regular Pulse customers reporting having seen Mateen visit the nightclub on no fewer than a dozen occasions. One of them said he would sometimes become drunkenly loud and belligerent and at other times would drink in a corner by himself. According to a witness who recognized him outside the club an hour before the shooting, Mateen had messaged him using Jacked, a gay dating app, uh, intermittently and over the course of a year before the attack. Another witness said Mateen used the app Grinder and the website Adam for Adam to communicate with gay men and posted pictures of himself on both sites. 
Wow, Adam for Adam, that is a real, uh, real throwback. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, that was, I mean, at 2016, I don't think anybody I know was still using that one. No, nope. I never even used it. However, according to federal law enforcement officials, the FBI suspects the witness claiming to Mateen's homosexuality could be mistaken and has doubts that Mateen was gay. Law enforcement sources said that they found no photographs, text messages, apps, pornography, or cell tower location data to suggest that Mateen lived a gay life, closeted or otherwise. On the day of the shooting, Mateen's father, Mir Sadiq Mateen, said that he had seen his son get angry after seeing a gay couple kiss in front of his family at the Bayside Marketplace. Two days later, after his son's sexual orientation became a subject to speculation, his father said he did not believe his son was homosexual. However, his ex-wife claimed that his father called him gay while in her presence. And speaking on her behalf, her fiance said that um, she, his family, and others always believed that he was gay. And that the FBI had asked her not to tell this to the American media. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, I find it I find it very odd that they would be trying to cover up the fact that he was gay or bisexual or or whatever. Um when you have pe people saying, you know, they met up with him, they saw him there, his own ex-wife always thought he was. Um why would the FBI tr want to not disclose that? I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm not sure, yeah. but I, it, it does, it seems like there's too many um, kind of like accusations and like, also if he was a, a, a semi-regular at the nightclub, I think that says at least a little bit of something about his possible sexuality. And, and that's the thing, like sexuality is so, complex like it's not black and white and it sounds like from what i have heard it seems like he was somewhere kind of in that gray area mm -hmm. like, yes he had a wife but especially hanging out with the the um the police academy colleague yeah the gay bars like i think i would believe him that especially if he said that he asked him out I think it was probably a little bit more complicated than just he was one way or another. I agree. And he's the only person that will ever know. Uh, so during his second wife's trial in March 2018, which I will get into in a little bit, her defense revealed in a motion that Mateen had Googled downtown Orlando nightclubs. And after passing on the Disney Springs uh, nightclub, he debated between Pulse and the Eve Orlando before ultimately choosing to target Pulse. Trial witnesses say that the decision to target Pulse was made at the last minute and that the defense's motion er argued that this strongly suggests that the attack on Pulse was not a result of a prior plan to attack a gay nightclub exclusively. So as I mentioned, his second wife was in trial in 2018 
Um, she was arrested in January 2017. She was charged in federal court in Orlando with aiding and abetting, as well as obstruction of justice. Federal prosecutors accused her of knowing that Mateen was planning the attack. She pleaded not guilty to the charges. She moved to dismiss the obstruction charge, but that motion was denied by U.S. District Judge Paul G. Byron. Her trial took place in March of 2018, and during the trial, the prosecution revealed it withheld information during discovery that her confession of helping scout out potential attack locations was not based on accurate cell phone evidence, and that the FBI knew this even though it had been used to deny her bail. I hate that. Like, yeah, they made it up. They wanted someone to blame. They wanted someone they could put in a prison cell since they couldn't put him there. Mm-hmm. So they're like, okay, well, your cell phone data shows that what we're telling you actually didn't happen. But we're just going to not look at that and say that it did happen. And doesn't it, uh, it, it kind of makes me think of what some of the stuff we were talking about in the DC sniper case you know, when people put out information that is not based on facts or is based on hearsay or is just totally fabricated, it hurts everything. It hurts their credibility. And and, and then we wonder why people don't trust authorities. Yeah, exactly. Because, because stuff like this crap comes out. Yeah. And because of stuff like this crap, um, and I, I agree with this. On March 30th, the jury acquitted Salman of both charges. Yeah, if if their whole case was based on a lie, I mean, they, they really have no other choice. I mean, unless you could come up with some other critical piece of evidence, it's like, what else can you do? Okay, so... <laughs> Back to 2016, reactions to the nightclub ran uh, like very high emotional. Um, Florida Governor Rick Scott expressed support for all affected and said the State Emergency Operations Center was monitoring the incident. He declared a state of emergency for Orange County, Florida, and Orlando Mayor Buddy Dyer declared a state of emergency for the city. On June 24th, Scott directed that 49 state flags be flown for 49 days in the front of the Florida Historic Capitol in Tallahassee with the name, age, and photo of every victim displayed beneath each flag. The Obama administration expresses condolences to the victims. President Barack Obama ordered that the federal government provide any assistance necessary to pursue the investigation and support the community. In a speech, he described the shooting as an act of hate and an act of terror. He also issued a proclamation on June 12th, ordering United States flags upon non-private grounds and buildings around the country and abroad to be lowered to half staff until sundown, June 16th. He and Vice President Joe Biden traveled to Orlando on June 16th to lay flowers at a memorial and visit the victims' families. Immediately after the shooting, many people lined up to donate blood at local blood donation centers and blood mobile locations 
when One Blood, a regional blood donation agency, urged people to donate. Because the two hospitals that treated the victims, they actually ran out of blood. That is crazy. I know. So the surge in blood donations and the fact that the shooting targeted a gay nightclub spotlighted the Food and Drug Administration's controversial federal policy that forbids men who had sex with other men within the past year from donating blood. Now in uh, 2021, it's actually only a three-month time period, which is better. And I, I guess I understand why, because there's the history of AIDS running rampant in the gay community. But I've, it's not just gay people that have AIDS. I mean, right. It's like they should it's... be testing all the blood all the time anyway. Well, they do. They do test all the blood all the time. But I just think it's it's a bullshit standard. I mean, everyone is susceptible to getting AIDS. It's not just gay men. Yeah. And it yeah. So it's like by excluding gay men from uh, giving blood. So the two hospitals that treated Paul's victims Uh, the Orlando Regional Medical Center and Florida State Hospital announced in late August of 2016 that they would not be billing the survivors for or pursuing any reimbursement. The city of Orlando offered free plots and free funeral services at the city-owned Greenwood Cemetery for those killed in the shooting. Wow. Equality Florida. Those are huge expenses. Oh, gosh, yes. Well, I mean, for the hospital to not charge for any of that, I mean, if if we broke broke a wrist, it's like $5,000. If you've been shot and multiple internal organs are obliterated and you have to be in a medically induced coma for two months and all these drugs and rehabilitation fees, that's like hundreds of thousands of dollars and for the hospitals to just give that to these victims is so commendable mm-hmm. so equality florida the state's largest lgbtq plus rights group started a fundraising page to aid the victims and their families raising seven hundred sixty-seven thousand dollars in the first nine hours whoa i thought when you when you said that number i i thought you, that was gonna be like the total the final number you want to hear the total that was in a day that was in nine hours oh my gosh and you that- want to hear the total though which i love that people are so loving um to date they have raised over 7.85 million dollars which is a record for gofundme Dang. Oh, man. And what a deserving cause. Yes. Another fundraising campaign, One Orlando, was established by Mayor Buddy Dyer. The Walt Disney Company and NBC Universal each donated $1 million to the fund. Wow. The One One Orlando Fund has paid out nearly $30 million to members of the victims' families. IDW Publishing and DC Entertainment created the graphic novel Love is Love. All profits uh, made from the novel went to the victims. The novel became a New York Times bestseller and more than $165,000 was raised and donated to the One Orlando Fund. Wow, I'm going to have to look for that one. Love is Love. (laughs) Yeah, I want to find it too. Yeah. 
Following the shooting, many business venues in the United States, such as shopping malls, movie theaters, bars, and concert halls, re-examined their security procedures. Also, police forces nationwide announced plans to increase security at all LGBTQ plus landmarks, such as the Stonewall Inn, and to increase security at Pride Month events, including Pride parades. I remember this because um, it, like, I was very shocked when I had heard this news, and I, I would go out regularly with my friends. I like we, uh, there's a group of us that would always go to karaoke at a gay bar, and. I remember there being like ex, like actual like uniformed police officers like outside and it was just like having that it felt on edge and it really like it really put into perspective how quickly a place where you feel comfortable and safe can be turned into a killing field and mm-hmm. when I think thought about the um the descriptions of of what happened at Pulse nightclub, since I've never seen what that place looked like, I just think of, I think of it in terms of like the places that I go. I'm like, I could picture the dance floor full of bodies, and it's the dance floor that I've danced on hundreds of times, mm-hmm. and uh, it just gives me chills thinking about it. And and going forward from there, I. I feel like I always have to think about if something goes down, where are my exits? If I was trapped, what would my strategy be? Like, is there like a, a bar or is there a staircase going to the basement that, or a bathroom or something like, and I, I hate that we live in a, in a time where we have to think about that all the time. So before we wrap up with, you know, the conclusion, I just want to say that it's very, very, very important to recognize that Muslims aren't all terrorists and that the chance of a person uh, practicing Islam being an angry, violent killer is the same exact chance as the Catholic who goes to church every Sunday and the Jewish person who goes to synagogue and the atheist who doesn't believe in a God. Um, And it's just really, really, you talked about this earlier. It's really unfair and it's really unfortunate that the Muslim community um, in, you know, any, any country outside of Islamic state is shadowed by darkness because of the the times when there was a Muslim extremist who did do something terrible. So I know our listeners are all in agreement with that. I know we have a, a wonderful fan base, um, but I just needed to say that. Mm-hmm. You know, I married into a Muslim family and it, for me, it, it hurts me to know that my family has to live with those feelings. And in relation to that, immediately following the massacre, American Muslims all over the country 
including community leaders, swiftly condemned the shooting. Prayer vigils for the victims were held at mosques across the country. The Florida mosque where Mateen sometimes prayed issued a statement condemning the attack and offering condolences to the victims. The Council on American Islamic Relations called the attack monstrous and offered its condolences. Care Florida urged Muslims to donate blood even while observing the month of Ramadan, which requires Muslims to fast from dawn to dusk. And in support and solidity, some Muslim groups also called on members to break their Ramadan fast so they could donate blood and help the victims. Many Islamic countries all around the world, including Turkey, Oman, Pakistan, Indonesia, Iran, and Iraq, among many others, condemned the attack and expressed their condolences to the victims and their families through public statements and avid prayers. Wow, that's that's a surprising list. I mean, especially places that you wouldn't think would be sympathetic to that community, but it just goes to show that sometimes our humanity can overcome our differences and the fact that somebody who claimed to be a representative of an entire faith really uh, did perpetrated such a horrible act that the people who are really true believers in Islam are, are there to, to stand up and be like, that person doesn't speak for me. That doesn't, that person doesn't speak for what our religion stands for, who we are as a people. And I'm very pleasantly surprised to hear so many places on a large scale um, spoke out against what happened. Mm -hmm. And that's just like, literally, that was just a a tip of of the responses. Uh, If you Google like global reactions to Pulse Club nightclub, Pulse nightclub shooting, there's an extensive list of even places of which I don't want to give too much credit, but even countries such as Russia, which is which has a track record of suppressing, uh, killing and murdering gay people in Chentia, oh, but okay. we'll not go there today. Yeah. Um, but even Russia put out statements yeah. condemning it. So, which I mean that as as much as there is one evil person like Omar Mateen on this planet, the amount of outpouring support that came from the rest of the world just shows you that nine out of 10 times the world is better than what it's perceived to be. That makes me think of the, the Anne Frank quote that, um, about how she believed in the the core good in people that like mm-hmm. she believed in the best yeah in people despite the bad things that would happen in the world so what is the future of pulse on september 14th 2016 the city of orlando announced it would pay four thousand five hundred eighteen dollars to erect a fence around pulse nightclub on september 19th 2016. The fence featured a commemorative screen wrap with local artwork that would serve as a memorial to the victims and survivors of the shooting. 
On November 8, 2016, the city of Orlando announced its plans to purchase Pulse Nightclub later that month for $2.25 million and turn the site into a memorial for the victims and survivors. The announcement was met with praise from Orlando's LGBTQ community. However, in December of 2016, the owner, Barbara, declined to sell the nightclub to the city due to emotional attachment. She then created the One Pulse Foundation and in May 2017, announced plans for a memorial site and a museum slated to open in 2022. Wow. This would be a place that she opened to honor her brother that would now in hand be honoring the 48 victims. That's really amazing. Uh, And I'm, I'm so glad that it didn't just... Because I feel like something like this could in um, in another time could so easily be demolished. And because I think that there in a lot of other cases where like mass shootings and stuff have happened, there's a kind of a a hurried reaction to be like, we want to forget about this. We don't want to look at the ugliness of what happened. Yeah, it's like, put it away. We don't want to be reminded. Yeah, and I think that it's it's smart to, to allow this place to continue to exist as a, a memorial ever be, because, I mean, you could never feel good about going there again if it was reopened as another nightclub, and... If it, I can't imagine it being turned into anything else, and it would just be, it would just be kind of inappropriate. Well, the way I see it is that pre the pre shooting, Pulse was a place of love and happiness and joy. Uh, people came to life when they entered the dance floor. Uh, the regulars felt like it was their second home, and instead of tearing it down, I think it's great that the owner is making it back into that place. They're not replacing it with a new, a new building that never saw the, the violence. They're embracing the violence and turning that into a place of love again. Mm-hmm. They're transforming it back to what it used to be, which I think is great. It's beautiful. Yeah, and it's, it's a little bit comforting that, uh, you know, that this shooter tried to take away a community space from from this group of people and he lost he it's going to always be this community space and like he really failed his objective yeah sure you may have taken out some individuals but you've only intensified the the fire in the LGBTQ community. And it's a little comforting to know that it's like, you can strike. Hurt us. Yeah. But you will never defeat us. Exactly. A love will always win in the end. Mm -hmm. So to wrap up, I just want to pay tribute to those who were brutally murdered by reading the names and ages of all the victims. 
Stanley Almodovar III, 23, Amanda Alvier, 25, Oscar A. Aracena Montero, 26, Rodolfo Ayala Ayala, 33, Alejandro Barrios Martinez, 21, Martin Benitez Torres, 33, Antonio D. Brown, 30, Daryl R. Burt II, 29, Jonathan I. Camus Vega, 24, Angel L. Candelario Pedro, 28, Simon A. Carrillo Fernandez, 31, Juan Chavez Martinez, 25, Luis D. Conde, 39, Corey J. Connell, 21, Tevin E. Crosby, 25, Frankie J. De Jesus Velasquez, 50, Bianca D. Drayton, 32, Mercedes M. Flores, 26, Peter O. Gonzalez Cruz, 22, Juan R. Guerrero, 22, Paul T. Henry, 41, Frank Hernandez, 27, Miguel A. Honorato, 30, Javier Jorge Reyes, 40, Jason B. Yosefat, 19, Eddie J. Justice, 30, Anthony L. Laroreño Disla, 25, Christopher A. Leononen, 32, Brenda L. Marquez McCool, 49, Jean C. Mendez Perez, 35, Aikra Monet Murray, 18, Kimberly Morris, 37, Jean C. Nieves Rodriguez, 27, Luis O. Ocasio Capo, 20, Geraldo A. Ortiz Jimenez, 25, Eric Ivan Ortiz Rivera, 36, Joel Rayon Piniagua, 32, Enrique L. Rios Jr., 25, Juan P. Rivera Velasquez, 37, Yomari Rodriguez Solivan, 24, Christopher J. Sanfeliz, 24, Javier Emmanuel Serrano Rosado, 35, Gilberto Ramon Silva Menendez, 25, Edward Sotomayor Jr., 35, Shane E. Tomlinson, 33, Leroy Valentin Fernandez, 25, Luis S. Vielma, 22, Luis Daniel Wilson Leon, 37, and Gerald A. Wright, 31. That is such a hard list to listen to when you, you say how old they were after. It's like so many of those people had a whole life ahead of them. Yeah, and are around our age. I mean, it's- Or were around our age at the time. Yes, yeah. You know, it's you say you picture the dance floor where you dance as being the massacre, but if at the time 2016 I was 26, I was still in my clubbing times. It's like, yeah, like you said, that could have been me. It could have been you. And so. yeah, it's like these are our peers. Yeah, and yeah. I remember when this happened. Like I said, I wasn't in the country, but I woke up 
um, overseas and I read the news and, you know, we, we've grown accustomed to mass shootings, but for the, I mean, also, I guess I was really affected by the Sandy Hook shooting being an elementary school teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, but this one felt so much more personal because it, it was, it was me, you know, yeah, I was the target anything to take effect because you know there are just too many weapons out there in the hands of people who shouldn't have them Mm -hmm. and it's it's like trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube it's like if if 20 30 years ago we had made some bold change on how we deal with weapons in this country we might only just now be seeing the the effects and now it's like well if we do something tomorrow we might not even see the the full effect of it until we've got gray hair yep i mean which i hope is a long time from now the gray hair thing at least i've started are you serious (laughs) yeah i've started i got some streaks um that's okay i think i'm gonna look good as a silver fox i think i think so too Mm-hmm. It works for Anderson Cooper. Yes. So yeah, that that's a really, really tragic story of what happened at Pulse Nightclub. However, I want to end on a little bit of a positive note is that every time that we are able to celebrate the LGBTQ plus community, every time there's a pride festival, every time there's a wedding within our community, every time there's progress made for like spousal rights or adoption rights um Mm -hmm. medical rights those are the times that we need to celebrate not only for ourselves right now but celebrate for the countless number of victims of hate crimes towards the community for centuries Mm -hmm. so for so many people those protections have come way too late yes they have so as those protections keep coming out, let's celebrate for them. Celebrate for everyone that came before us, everyone making sure that the changes are happening now and for the future that I'm really optimistic about. Right. I, the, I, I think I was trying to come up with this quote before, but it's like the, the arc of history bends toward justice. Yes, that is a quote that I, I love. I remembered it. <laughs> Uh, I think that was Martin Luther King Jr. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. The same, I I believe that you could also say that the arc of history bends toward equality, that as we progress as a society, uh, it becomes more and more normalized that uh, we all have a lot more in common than we have different, and that everyone is entitled to the pursuit of happiness. And I mean, it goes along with one of like the founding principles of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And I, I just hope that everybody can experience that. And we're still fighting for it. So be very, grateful for the progress that has been made but don't stop fighting for it because there's still a ways to go 
Yep. Yep. Always can make progress. Yes. Well, I am extremely grateful that you covered this one. It was one that I was at least somewhat familiar with, um, but I had not gone through all the details before like you did today. So it's a really, really important story. And I'm really glad that we can put this out there for our listeners um, because there's somebody out there who maybe has not heard this story before or has only superficially heard this story. and for the the sake of those fallen like they deserve to have their story told yeah and their lives celebrated yes and i i really wanted to say their names at the end because it, the the shooter's name was all over the papers mm -hmm. but the names that we should know and that we should speak about are those who fell okay well um like i said the next my next episode is also going to be along this line to honor and commemorate uh, the LGBTQ plus lives that have been shattered or taken too soon. And until next time, everyone. Bye. bye.